Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9, 28 through 36. Listen to him. Listen to him is the title of the message. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Who do you listen to? That's the question I have for you today. Who do you listen to? Who is it uh, that has, uh, whose ear do you have? Whose opinions, tweets, and comments sway your decision making? What makes them qualified to give you uh, advice or to direct your thought process? That would be a question I would have to those that you seek out advice from. Let me ask you, have you ever been burned by someone you trusted? They gave you advice, counsel, and just burned. They, they just didn't know what they were talking about. You took their advice, you wound up regretting it. I'm sure many of us have. Choosing whom we listen to is a very big deal. Choose wrong and you can pay a big price. It could cost you a relationship, income, investments, time, etc. But how do we know who to believe in? There is no shortage of experts, are there? There are many competing voices, and all of them declare themselves to be experts, to, to, to have the inside knowledge, to know what it takes to help you get your dreams. Well, fortunately, though it may be difficult at times to decide who our earthly counselors should be and their trustworthiness, we don't have the same problem when, come, problem when it comes to our heavenly counselor. In our passage last week, the main theme was that true followers of Jesus must abandon all claims on their lives. And let me say that again. All true followers, genuine Christians, those who truly have been regenerated and are children of God, must abandon all claims on your life. To confess that Jesus the Christ comes at a very high price. That price is self-denial, suffering, and supplanting our dreams, our aspirations, and our affections with those of Jesus's. Yet we are called to understand that the price of doing so is worth it. And the benefits, the rewards are great. And the benefits vastly outweigh any loss, any earthly loss you may have. Now, as we've been going through Luke, Luke has been masterfully weaving the narrative of his eyewitness accounts to give his readers certainty and confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Now, here we are, 18 months of Jesus' public ministry, teaching, preaching, exercising uh, demons, and and doing miracles. Yahweh now is finally going to get the final word here. After all the considerations, the concerns, the claims, the calls for the certification of the identity of Jesus, the basis of his authority, the source of his power, from the religious leaders, from the people, from John the Baptist and even Herod, we finally come to the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry with the confession of his disciples that Jesus is the Son of God. And the confirmation that Yahweh, from Yahweh, that Jesus is indeed his son, the chosen one. In this passage today, Jesus reveals his divine glory and is full of Old Testament imagery as we read through it. So here we are, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. It here is here on the monitor as well, but take your Bibles if you have them. 
And Luke writes, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure when he was about to accomplish, or which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And there's 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what had been seen. Father, we want to listen to Christ. He has the words of life. It's found and contained here in your Gospels, in the Scriptures. Give us wisdom. Help us as we read this familiar portion of Scripture. Open up our hearts anew to it. Make it fresh. Lord, let us learn. Father, I pray that your Spirit would prompt our hearts to a promise that we must need to claim. Maybe a challenge we need to accept. Maybe repentance that must be offered. A confession that needs to be done. Lord, above all, Lord, that we would come to follow you and see that you truly are the Son of God, the Chosen One of God. We thank you for this time in your name. Amen. Luke is writing here that eight, eight days after Peter's confession and Jesus' declaration to the cost of that confession, Jesus finally finds some time to take his disciples and to take them up into the mountains to pray. This is a, a theme of Luke. They've been busy from, uh, for, uh, for a long time. The, the disciples had just gotten back from their, their ministry. Remember their little missionary ministry. And Jesus had tried to get them away once, but then the 5,000 men had followed them. He finally is getting them away now from the crowds. They have some much needed rest and a time of prayer. At this point, Jesus finished his ministry in Galilee, and he now begins to prepare his disciples for what lays ahead as he begins to travel south to Jerusalem. That's what we're going to find next as we go now through the rest of chapter 9 and all the way to the end of Luke is, is Jesus now is moving towards Jerusalem for his predetermined time of death, that, that divine appointment he has. They still are not sure what Jesus meant when he informs them that the Messiah must suffer, be rejected, face death, and be resurrected. That just blows their mind. As usual, the disciples find themselves sleeping instead of praying. That seems to be their forte. Every time Jesus goes to pray, they, they get tired, they get sleepy. And they almost miss a wonderful event that testifies to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And I, I want to give us three observations here about Jesus very quickly as we look at that passage. Number, first, number one, first, we, we see the prestige of Jesus, the prestige, the glory of Jesus in verse 29. Luke describes a remarkable transformation. He writes that the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. 
That phrase, dazzling white in Greek, means to flash like lightning. Now, I, I know we don't get to see that much here, but for those of you who have ever been a little bit further, further east, have you ever seen a lightning show? I mean, that is just, it's one of the things that Dawn and I say that we miss very much. I, I can remember from a young man to, you know, just growing up before we moved here, just sitting on our porch and watching a light, a lightning show, whether it was coming down from the heavens down to the earth and, and just disappearing between the trees or a building. Uh, to those that were, one of the, the most beautiful ones is, is, I can't even imagine how many there were, but the sky was just lighting up. And it was lightning from one cloud to another. It wasn't coming down. It was, it was just beautiful. I, I mean, I remember it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, and I was just sitting there watching that for like a half hour, just beautiful colors and lights. And there's something about lightning that just lights everything up. It's, it's that dazzling. It's that pure. It's that clean. Not only do you see his appearance change, but we also see that Jesus is in conversation with Moses and Elijah, who are described simply as, two men. Now, you and I wouldn't think of Moses and Elijah as just two men, would you? Uh, even, even, even we have, have something about Moses and Elijah which make them seem to be uh, more than just mere human, mere normal humans, but they aren't. They're men like you and I. These two men, though, were considered the greatest of Israelites, and they were tied to the promises of the Messiah. It's now apparent to disciples and Luke readers that Jesus is neither of those two men. Remember, some said, oh, he must be Elijah. He must be Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. No, he, he stands above them. They're coming to talk to him. So first, we see the prestige of Jesus. Secondly, we see the passion of Jesus in verse 30. The passion of Jesus in verse 30. Luke tells us that Moses, Elijah, and Jesus were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that word departure means exodus. Again, this, this is where we're seeing kind of like some Old Testament uh, imagery here. You remember when Moses saw God, what happened to his face? Remember, it was altered, and it too was blinding like light. Now we see the word exodus here that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is a reference to Jesus' pronouncement that the Messiah is the servant of God who will suffer at the hands of wicked men at Jerusalem. That's the passion of Christ. We know that term. This is a divine appointment that was preordained before the foundations of the world. Before in the beginning it was planned that Jesus would come to redeem man from his sin. So we see the passion. This is the topic of conversation. Why they were there speaking to Jesus. Thirdly, we see the proclamation of the Father concerning Jesus in verse 35. Luke, through the eyewitness accounts of Peter, James, and John, writes that a, a voice came out of the cloud as the cloud entered them. Again, now you're, now we're looking back even at the Old Testament imagery of the exodus of, of the mount, of the, of the cloud coming and directing them where to go, but also covering the mountain and covering the tabernacle. And he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. There's an identification and then a command. This serves to shows us that God has pleasure in his son. That son in whom God delights is the eternal image and reflection of God and is thus God himself. And not only that, we are to listen to Christ because he has the words of life. In John 6, verse 68, Peter declares, Lord, whom do we, should we go to? You have the words 
of eternal life. Listen to him. Now, the heavenly glory presented in this passage is in stark contrast to the humiliation of Jesus earlier when when he revealed that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's the humiliation of Christ. This is much different because now we see he is magnified through his disciples' eyes. Theologian Walter Russell writes that, tran- that the transfiguration is a revelation of the glory of the Son of God. It was a glory that was now hidden or was hidden, but now is to be manifested completely and openly at the end of the age. In other words, we're getting a preview of what Jesus will look like, who he truly is when he comes in the glory of his Father to render judgment on the world. So as to give them encouragement, this passage serves as a confidence builder and an encouragement and a vindication to every believer that professes Jesus as Lord and abandons everything to follow him. In other words, it is worth it to follow Jesus. It is worth it to give it all up. Theologian R.T. France notes that this passage makes three points. First, the visible alteration of Jesus demonstrates that he is more than just a mere teacher. Jesus is more than just a mere teacher of the law. He's not there just teaching a new and better way. Looking for solitude and prayer and encouragement, Jesus is finally able to get away from the disciples. and He brings three of them, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountaintop with him. Now in Scripture, you'll see that Peter, James, and John seem to make up that inner circle of the twelve. Many times Jesus brings them, whether it's healing of a healing of a of a of a, of a daughter or or the, uh, the the prayer at Gethsemane. One of the twelves, or out of the twelve of uh, twelve, Jesus had a special relationship with these three, and they were about to give a special revelation, a supernatural revelation of a lifetime. Jesus is going to finally reveal Himself, His ministry, and His purpose in coming. It involves suffering. It involves rejection and betrayal. And as you recall from this series, the desire of the Messiah's appearance has reached a fever pitch. The long-expected Messianic age has finally arrived. And the Messiah is now telling them that not only will the Messiah be rejected and die, but anyone who follows him must also be willing to do the same. With that kind of news, we would all need encouragement. They would need a confidence booster. They would need some confirmation that, wait a second, is this truly the Messiah? Jesus is finally revealing himself in that way. In asking who people thought he was, remember, some commented that Jesus was a prophet, a healer, a teacher. But Jesus is so much more than just a teacher and a healer. There were other Jews who did those types of things as well. See, he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And this supernatural reveal on the, on the mountain demonstrates this as Jesus is changed right before their eyes. Now, Mark, in his gospel account of this event, writes that Jesus was transfigured before them. Luke says altered. The Greek word used for transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis, meaning to change into another form. John MacArthur writes that in some inexplicable way, 
Jesus manifested some of his divine glory to these three disciples. They get a, a preview, a sneak peek. In Luke 29, a good doctor is telling us that his clothes became dazzling white and his face was altered. This divine glory emanating from Jesus made even his clothing radiate brilliant white light. Now light is often associated with God's visible presence. As you might remember, scripture tells us that Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. In scripture, in scripture many times God appeared in light and clouds and fire and intense glory. Luke is making a point here to describe that Jesus clothes as being so white that no earthly cleaner could accomplish. So Jesus is more than just a mere teacher as we look at this passage. But also we see that with his association, Elijah and Moses demonstrates that messianic role that Jesus plays here. Some believe that the Old Testament heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, are chosen to represent the law and the prophets. That's why they're here. Just talk to Jesus. Moses for the law and Elijah for the prophets, standing in for them. Or they were chosen due to the fact that they themselves had mysterious appearances that echoes the mysteries of this world. In Deuteronomy, we see that Jesus, or that God himself, buried Moses and that even today his, his body cannot be found. In 2 Kings, you might recall from several years ago, Elijah was taken up into a whirlwind chariot of fire. He was just translated into heaven. Elijah was also expected to usher in that messianic kingdom. From Malachi 4.5, you've heard this many times, where God promises, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet for that great and awesome day of the Lord. And God had also promised in Deuteronomy that he would send another prophet like Moses in the great day. Listen to him. We are commanded in Deuteronomy. Well, Luke tells us that Moses and Elijah, they're speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, confirming what Jesus has already revealed to his disciples, that he must suffer and die. Peter, as usual, responds impulsively, asking if he should build some tents, some earthly shelters for heavenly beings. At a loss of words due to waking up, and also finding himself very fearful of what he is witnessing, he seeks to do something. And like Peter, when Peter wants to do something, it's usually the wrong thing. Peter is one of those guys that I can actually uh, uh, understand and, 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 and uh, um, uh, what's that word looking for? Relate to, yes. I can relate to Peter. He had that foot and mouth disease, always sticking his foot in his mouth. It seems that he's still not fully grasping what he is witnessing. He wants to have them to stay, not recognizing that they need to go, that Jesus has an appointment, that there's a time for him coming in about 18 months. And Jesus needs to be on his way. Disciples would have been aware of these passages in Scripture about Messiah speaking of Elijah and Moses. And so when they see Moses and Elijah, and it, it makes it very clear that they recognize who these men are. Even though they had never seen them, there must have been some type of supernatural Holy Spirit revelation to them. Well, here's Moses, here's Elijah. They recognize they're putting pieces together, yet it still doesn't make quite sense for them. Quite makes sense. Number three, the voice from heaven declares Jesus' identity as the Son of God. 
Once again, the father speaks into history and announces that Jesus is his son. Earlier, after Jesus' baptism, the father had proclaimed, you are my beloved son, and with you I am pleased. And though Jesus was rejected by his own people and killed by the Romans, (coughs) he is accepted and loved by the father. The bright cloud is reminiscent of the cloud of God's presence that would settle onto the tabernacle and lead them through the wilderness wanderings. This time the father gives a simple statement and command. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son, my chosen one, the anointed one. Listen to him. Now, this refers to obedient listening. And if you're taking notes, write that. What he's telling us here is to obey in listening. Not just hearing what Jesus says, but obedient listening. Listen to him. Follow his commands. David was able to do that as we read in our call to worship. Thy words are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Hold on to his words. He's telling them to grab on. This is someone to listen to. This is someone to ask for for advice. He's the son of God, the chosen one. If you want the expert to listen to, then listen to him. I think this is a struggle that Christians today, as Christians before us, we struggle with obedient listening. Jesus says, if you love me, you do my commandments, obey my commandments. But yet we live in a society and a generation that still has that depraved heart that is always seeking to do our own thing. And even when Christ comes and regenerates our hearts, we recognize that we need to renew our thinking, right? We need to reorder our affections and, 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 and repurpose our will. And so you and I need to learn is that we need to get to obedient listening to God's word, not just agreeing with it, not just finding out the fill in the blank, but coming to the point where I'm obediently listening to what Jesus says. What an encouraging statement. Disciples most likely are struggling with tough and difficult revelations of Jesus. What he is telling them is turning their world upside down. What he is teaching them is contrary to everything that has been, they have been taught and been praying and expecting from the Messiah. Suffer, rejection, betrayal, death. These are not words or actions that they were hoping for. Maybe for their enemies, they want suffer and rejection and betrayal and death, but not from the Messiah. On top of that, they too must follow suit and choose to suffer and die. Who wants to be obedient to that? Yet Jesus tells them that salvation must come through suffering. There is no turning back. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and he marches forward willingly obediently, ready to do that which the Father has requested of him. And I expect that this great supernatural event was also meant to strengthen and encourage Jesus as well as he's seeking and he's praying the Father. Here I am, I'm halfway through my ministry. Uh, Just as the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe his thought was, uh, are you sure you want me to do this? This is a good time to turn back. I go down from this mountain, it leads to Jerusalem. This is encouraging and strengthening to Jesus as well. This destiny with the cross has been, has been decreed from the beginning. And Jesus himself is obedient to the Father. 
Paul tells the Philippine church that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Let me ask you, is that your type of obedience? Or listening? Do you, do you listen to the obedience to the point where it would cost you something? Maybe a job? Maybe a relationship? Maybe a friendship? Are you willing to listen to him obediently to the point of going to jail? Facing ridicule? Or to the point of death? And Hebrews says we haven't even come to the point of shedding blood in our fighting sin. Jesus accepted the agreement that he and the Father had made in eternity past. Jesus accepted his important role in our salvation. Paul informs the Corinthian believers that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The author of Hebrew writes that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the same. And again to the Philippians, he writes, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him that a name that, a name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to him. He is someone to listen to. Two, he is one to pay attention to. But see, the transfiguration also serves as encouragement to follow and put their trust in in the suffering Messiah. It served as encouragement to find that the cost was worth it. God used this event, the transfiguration, to give disciples boldness to preach Christ crucified. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. It serves as an encouragement to give them boldness so that they may preach Christ crucified. This is important. They, they did not understand it at first. It, it threw them off balance. Peter fought against it. He raised his sword against it. Then he denied it and fled from God. The disciples moved from great confession... You are the Christ to great confusion. And then from great confusion to great conviction. Recalling this great event after the ascension of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, both Peter and John became great pillars of the church while James became the first martyr of the church. Look at their testimony in 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at what Peter says as he's writing here. He says, for we, speaking of the disciples, those First Testament Christians, he said, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord, Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we, we, didn't, we didn't develop something. We're not pulling from other religions. We're not compiling some type of fairy tale story. But he goes on, we were eyewitnesses of his, of his majesty. What, he says, we, we've seen his majesty. Now, how is that? 
He goes on to say, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and his voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I, my, I am well pleased. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of the transfiguration. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. Even at this time, probably almost 20 to 30 years after, this is leading Peter to be bold in, or in preaching Christ crucified. He goes back to that moment and he remembers when God said, this is my son, my chosen son, listen to him. Peter still finds himself near the end of his life, ready to give his life for the one who was confirmed by Yahweh. The encouragement that we find in Luke's passage concerning Jesus' identity and purpose will eventually empower these disciples to suffer and die. It is the same encouragement that will empower the Gentile readers of Luke in the first century. It is the same encouragement that will empower centuries of martyrs and Christians to abandon it all to follow Christ. And it's the same encouragement that will also empower you and I to forsake everything in order to bring Christ. So I implore you this morning, would you listen to him with obedience, with boldness, with encouragement, knowing that we have the words of life. Now the transfiguration of Jesus encourages and empowers us in five ways. And we'll go through these quickly. What do you and I get from this? How, how does this help us in our life today? Well, it does it in five ways. Number one, it informs us of the identity of Jesus. So that there be no quarrel of who is Jesus. Many were confused about his identity. They were amazed at his teaching, astonished at his miracle working power, astounded by his statements, but also they were undecided and conflicted and confused about him. Even today, many do not know what to make of Jesus they say they love his teachings, but they don't love his bride, the church. Yet when it comes down to it, they reject his teachings as well. They struggle with his divinity. Yet in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Some will declare that, yes, he's just a divine being, a created being. Some will say, no, he just came in the flesh or did not come in the flesh. Is he just a, a good, enlightened teacher like Gandhi? Confucius? Buddha? But you and I are not to be confused for this points to him as the chosen one of God. Number two, that Jesus will come again in all power, glory, and vindication. Jesus will come again in all power, glory, and vindication. The Bible is telling us is he's given us a preview of what he looks like there. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, the apostle John writes of the resurrected Jesus. You see it here, I believe. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstand was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a short, sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He had gotten a glimpse of Jesus' glory there on the mountain. Here near the end of his life, God gives him once again another vision of Jesus. What he just described was a man that you and I should listen to. For he will come again, he says, in power. Not as a suffering servant, but as a roaring lamb and lion. Number three, the scripture also tells us that just as Jesus was transformed, you and I will also be transformed. As Jesus was transformed, we will be transformed. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all with unveiled face, face, with our face now open to see, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Look at here, Philippians chapter 3. Again, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Listen to him, for he will put all things under the feet of Christ. And we ourselves will be transformed. And let me tell you, this this is a word of encouragement to you and I especially as we get older and our body does not work as it should, when the aches and pains are more and more, when the the troubles and the perils of this world are so much, we know that something, one day, it's going to be better. 1 John 3, 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But you know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Number four. As God's children, we have nothing to fear. Peter, James, and John are fearful as they come into the presence of God, as so say they should be. But as children of God today, we have nothing to fear about the glory of Christ. In the Old and New Testament, Theophanies. Theophanies is, is when Christ came into the earth, where they were able to see Christ or see God through the glory, through, through the cloud, through the pillar. When they come to face to face with God, it brought fear. The visible glory of deity, deity brings terror. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6 with Isaiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, if you want to turn there real quickly. We read Moses reminding the Israelites of their fear when they confronted Yahweh. They said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness. Remember when he came down on the mountain and the the mountain was covered with his, with fire and with a cloud. It says, We've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. They wanted God to just shut up. They couldn't handle it anymore. They were fearful of their lives. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and have still lived? 
Go near and hear all that the Lord your God will say and speak to us. All that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. Moses, you go on our behalf for we are fearful of the living God. However, we are now called to have no fear. Instead, the Bible tells us because of Christ, we now can boldly approach God in prayer and worship. Scripture instructs us in Matthew 10 to fear not, therefore. You are more value than many sparrows, so everyone who acknowledges before men, I will acknowledge me before my Father who is in heaven. We have a new relationship. When we come face to face to God at that day of, of reckoning, we have nothing to fear. There'll be no condemnation. To those of us who obediently listen to him, he will receive us. In 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God has given us a spirit of, uh, uh, has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Then once again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, should be here on the monitor. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me tell you, friends, do not be afraid to take your troubles to Christ. Do not be fearful of God, for he loves us, and he has put his face to shine on us out of love, his wrath has been satisfied, as we talked about in our adult core class earlier this morning. He now looks upon us with favor because of Christ. And fifthly and lastly, though Christ is no longer physically here on earth, you and I can trust Scripture. This is so important. You may say, well, how do I listen to him? He no longer is on the mountain. He is no longer showing himself walking physically on earth. And this is the problem. Many people are looking for mountaintop experiences. They're looking for some type of experience to get them in an emotional state so they can see and hear God. Babylon B has a joke where a man says he's praying for God, wanting to hear from God while his Bible is three feet from him. You and I have to recognize that we are to listen to him. God still speaks from the mountaintop, so to speak. But it's through his word. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21. You might recall that verse we just read just a moment ago. Where Paul said, or Peter is saying, I can boldly preach Christ because what I saw 30 years ago has given me the encouragement. And when I heard the father say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that I listened to him. That made an impact in my life. It led me to believe that following Christ was worth any cost, even the cost of my life. But then he says something in verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 1. That's amazing. You'll see it here on the monitor, but have it in your Bible. You're going to want this portion of Scripture. You're going to want to highlight it, mark it in some way. For you and I, we want these experiences. Many churches are designed to do that through their music and through type of prayers and things like that to bring themselves in some type of emotional state to where they can feel or hear His presence. Look what Peter says in verse 19 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. 
after speaking of hearing the very voice of God, he says, and we had the prophetic word, what? More fully confirmed. Now, what can be more confirmed than hearing the actual voice of the Father, of seeing a Jesus being altered, his face, his transfiguration? He says, we have something actually more fully confirmed than that, to which you would do well to pay what? Attention to. Listen to him. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke or men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is he saying here is that you and I, through the Holy Scriptures, have something greater than that mountaintop experience. Let me tell you, experience can be deceiving sometimes. Now, I'm not saying they were deceived here. But experiences are always to be judged by the Word of God, not vice versa. And that's the problem is we have people who want to say, well, here's my feelings, here's my experience, and it trumps the Word of God. Let it not be so. He does not say, listen to your feelings or listen to your experiences or listen to your heart, which is the phrase, right? Just go with your heart, listen. What what does the Bible say about your heart? It's deceitful. It's wicked above all things. Listen to your feelings. Oh no, here I go. Just yesterday I read where young, one man is tweeting, he says, yes, yeah, some man is saying that he should listen to his six-year-old when he tells him that he's a boy when he's actually, or that he feels that he's a girl when he's actually a boy. Who listens to their six-year-old to tell them things like that? But that's the type of world we live in. If they feel this way, if they think this way, what are we here to do? We are to affirm it. We are to prove of it. We're to codify it into law and hold everyone accountable to it. Or to listen to the word of God. For these are the words of Christ. And let me give you a warning. For those of you who had red letter Bibles, the words that are in red that Jesus spoke are of no more importance than the words that are in black and white. The words of Jesus are not in contradiction with the words of Paul, as they're two competing religious teachers. They are all the word of God. I spoke to you several weeks ago when we look at the Old, Te- Old Testament, you look at Psalms, and in Psalms where it says, a song of ascents, that's part of the inspired word of God. That's not just some tem- editorial note. When it says to the choir master, a string instrument, that's the word of God. It's inspired by God, breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen to him. You and I have a mountaintop experience. It's called the word of God. How many of us open up the word of God? How many of us read the word of God? And I pray that you've been with us following through. We're almost done with the New Testament. We've been reading through the New Testament uh, from January to finish at the end of June. By the way, if you haven't started yet, you can get going by quickly. 
We've been listening to it. For those of us that are on Slack, we've been listening to it. It's just a great experience listening to the word of God. But it's more than just checking off a box saying, I read a passage of scripture. He's calling us to listen obediently to him. That's what it means. That's the call. We're to understand it. We're to to learn from it. We're to apply it to our lives. So you and I go, as I come here to a close, this may be just a a tad longer here, but I, I want us to get this. Jesus, through the transfiguration, has been identified as the chosen one of God, and we are commanded to listen to him. That event today is still to compel you and I to give us the boldness to listen to him. To continue to do what he's called us to do. So you and I are to listen to Christ as he speaks through scripture. The Bible, you need to understand, is reliable. I'm going to give you so you can write these down. The Bible is reliable. We must understand that this Bible is the word of God. Now, I have the ESV. I think uh, Dave has the New King James Version still. I believe he has that. Uh, Some of you might have an NIV or some other. uh, These are the words of God. They may be different in some words and some phrases, but you can trust that it is reliable. The evidence for the reliability of the Bible is overwhelming. And I don't have time to go into all that. If you want that information, we can definitely get that to you. Or we can sit down and give it to you. How as an ancient text given over, what, 5,000 plus years by 40 different authors, it can be reliable. It is trustworthy. The Bible is clear. The clarity of the Bible is very important. How many of you have ever read the Bible and you just don't understand it at times? Okay, be honest, yeah. I agree. There are times I just don't understand it. Well, guess where the problem is? Yeah, it's with your mind. It's not with Scripture. Now, does the Bible speak sometimes in imagery and uh, typology and imagery that sometimes that mysteries, I was going to say, that sometimes are confusing? Yes. But it is clear. In other words, it's God's revealed word to tell us exactly what we need to know for life and godliness. And he has made it clear. Now, the world today, as we've been talking about progressive Christianity, they want to redefine terms. They want to tell you that the Bible is not certain. There is no certainty with the Bible. It's not clear in what it says. Well, Jesus said this. Paul said this as they now try to compete against each other. Or the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. There's two different gods. Which one are you going to serve? Bible is clear through the Holy Spirit. Number three, it's necessary. The necessity of the Bible. It's necessary. You and I cannot please God except from listening obediently to his word. It is necessary for us. For in it is God's revealed word. word, All that he wants us to know. Is the Bible exhaustive? No. But has it given us everything that we need to know to live lives of godliness and holiness? Yes. And that's an important distinction. It is necessary. Hence why I say for me, one of the things that I've been doing, I'm trying to become certified as a biblical counselor. And in learning this, I believe that the Bible is necessary for true counseling to take place, even in a secular, even for someone who doesn't believe the Bible. 
For the Bible are the words of life. The words of life are not found in, in Sigmund Freud or in the philosophy of Plato or Aristotle or in the science of man. Uh, we've learned that through this last year. It's only in the word of God. It is necessary for you to listen. And lastly, the Bible is sufficient. It's sufficient. With that, I'm saying that you, the Bible gives you everything that you need to know when you will stand before Christ. Is sufficient, in fact, that it gives us all history? No. Does it give us everything we need to know about science? No. Will it tell us if there's aliens? Probably not. But it gives us everything that we need to know for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So the Bible is reliable, it is clear, it is necessary and sufficient to lead us to holiness and godliness in all areas of our life. So here's my plea for you this morning. Listen to him as he speaks concerning your marriage, concerning your relationships, concerning your finances, your parenting, your vocation, and your worship, just to name a few. Go directly to him. Of all the counselors and the people you go to advice, go to Christ. For he is the chosen one of God, his beloved son. Listen to him. Let us speak with boldness of the suffering of the Messiah. Well, let us speak of Christ as the son of God, God himself. And let us speak of, of the fact that he came to reconcile us to God by paying the debt that we owed, and earning our righteousness before a holy God. Let's listen to the chosen one of God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we ask Landon to make his way up as well as the worship team as we come for pastor, pastor prayer or closing song. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever-present in your life.